Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right, well, this morning I want to preach, uh, this is message number 67 out of 100, by the way, the longest sermon series in history. We're at about two-thirds now, so rounding the corner for the home stretch. And the message this morning um, comes from a very important event in the life of Jesus and his disciples. It's called the Transfiguration. And the text that we're going to draw from is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And let me just read that with you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Isn't that a great last sentence? When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You know, there's a common saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. I wonder if contempt is maybe too strong of a word, but I do agree it is a strong human tendency to disregard those who are closest to us. In fact, I think the easiest people to ignore or underestimate are the people we're supposed to know the best. Jesus himself said it this way uh, in Matthew 13, 13, 57. He said, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. I think another way of saying that is the preacher who holds the, the attention of the congregation in another church where he's speaking is still putting his own people to sleep every Sunday. Okay, are you hearing that? When I go to speak at a retreat, so many people are like, wow, this guy's really interesting. And then I come here and I know that every Sunday there's at least five people catching up on their beauty sleep. And it's not because you're unspiritual or you hate me. It's because the voice most familiar to you is often the easiest one to ignore. You hear it all the time. How many kids growing up, when their parents are talking to them, I see it all the time. I'm lecturing my kids and their eyes are off somewhere else. Just They're playing a, a Pokemon game or something while I'm talking. Just it, the voice is too familiar. And so as a result, we come to, to really devalue it in some, in some way. Excuse me. And every once in a while, we're granted a rare glimpse of a familiar person in a whole new light. You know, that happened for me back in 1991. After graduating from university, I worked for a year as a surgical technician. And uh, because they knew that my dad was a surgeon at the hospital and they knew that I was headed uh, at that point for medical school, they didn't make me do any of the grunt work that a surgical orderly used to do. But they let me do all these. Basically, all I did is watch other people do surgery while they explained everything they were doing. And I didn't have to do really any work at all. And so it was a really cool job for that reason. 
But I remember one day I, I saw on the, the list that my dad was performing surgery at that hospital, and I was in their schedule to assist with him. And I thought it was just the coolest thing in the world. I watched my dad go to work every single day for all my childhood. I had no idea what he was doing over there. I knew he was a surgeon, but you know, you always think of your own parents as like regular people. And then I watched him walk into that surgical room with scrubs on. He's got his hands like this. They put the gloves on. And I'm looking at my dad going, I can't believe this is my dad. And I watched him take a sharp scalpel. And somebody has agreed to let my dad cut them open. And I just, as I'm watching the whole thing, something started to happen in me. I began to look at my dad through new eyes. It was as if I had always respected my dad. But when I watched him put a knife into someone like that, I don't know what it is, but I had a whole different view of my father. I was so proud of him. I was so amazed at who he was. And when we, when we got home that night, <clears throat> I was still living with my folks at the time, and I just couldn't look at my dad the same way again because God had given me one of those rare glimpses of a familiar person in a whole different light. And you know, um, I think the 12 disciples, and these three in particular, were treated to a very, very similar experience that day when Jesus took them up on the mountaintop for the transfiguration. And I want to make this morning, you'll be relieved to hear, I want to make two observations, two, about this particular event in their life. And the first is they saw something so important, we also have to see this. They saw the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. That's what it says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And so already you see that this is a familiar motif for Jesus. He's taking three of the guys closest to him, his inner circle, that he's making a very big investment in their lives, and he brings them up to a mountain. I'm not sure why mountains are such inspirational places. I know some of you are avid climbers, and you are drawn to it. And I can't imagine it's just because you enjoy pulling yourself up by your hands. I mean, when I see it, it just looks like hard work to me. I guess for you, it's fun. But I think, to me, if I were a climber, the payoff would be when you finally make it to the top. And you know that just by, by cleverness and sheer muscle, you got up there, and you stand where very few people get to go, and you look down at the world from a different angle. And in some way, that experience, being on a mountain, draws our hearts closer to God. And so God often did profound things in people's lives. He had important encounters with them on a mountain for some reason. And Mark also adds that when they went there, they were all alone. And Luke adds that they had gone up there to pray. So the scene that we've got set here is Jesus takes his three closest guys and he brings them up to a mountain for a personal getting away from it all retreat. We're looking down on the earth from way up there. They're feeling closer to God, closer to one another, and they're there to pray. And it's in that setting that they have this profound encounter with Jesus and the scales fall from their eyes and they see Jesus in a way they'd never seen him before. And so I want to just make this quick parallel point that I think it's so important that we are in the regular practice of retreating away. Not just when your small group or your church gets away, but I think it is exceedingly important for every Christian to find some time in their calendar to step away from their life, their family, their work, even their church, and get alone with God in some place that is filled with natural beauty and just make it your sole purpose in that time 
to seek God and connect with him. So often, God's most profound encounters with us happen when we are intentionally getting away to look for him. Yes, you can see him in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, but I'm going to tell you right now, you will not regret it if a regular practice in your life, let's say once every change of seasons, every four times a year, you get away for 24 hours and you just get alone with God. Now, Luke 9.32 says something interesting. It says that the disciples, I don't know why these guys are so drowsy all the time, but they were sleepy again. Every time Jesus calls them aside to pray, these dudes are like, you know, just, you know, that feeling of like the sleep is so powerful, it's sucking you in. And we don't know why they were sleepy. Maybe they hadn't slept very much. But I know this, this setting that they were in was very familiar. Jesus was always taking them to pray. And this man who was taking them was very familiar. So it's like everything around them is so familiar that they're just not on high alert. Been here, done that, man. And I think that's the way sometimes we get with Jesus. We're so used to walking with him, we kind of start to ignore him. We start feeling like, well, you know, it's Jesus. We know each other. Every time I pray for my food, I pray in his name. And, you know, we're kind of tight like that. But the truth is, something is happening in our hearts where we're drifting a little bit from him. He's becoming so familiar, it's starting to get easy to ignore him. In fact, it's easy to start falling asleep when we're with him. And then abruptly, it says, suddenly they were rudely awakened by a blinding light. A blind. You've got to understand, these are people for whom the brightest light they had was natural sunlight. They didn't know anything about LED lights. Have you ever had someone shine a bank of high-power LED lights in your face? It's like a laser burning into your brain. It's so bright. And they're struggling to find words to describe just how bright this light was. There's a scene that happens very often in my house in the morning when I go downstairs to wake up Noah. He sleeps in the basement. We've got, we haven't imprisoned him in the dungeon. He, he likes that room. There's, a, there's a, an area that we've made into his bedroom. But it's really dark in the morning. And then when I turn on the light, the look on his face reminds me exactly what the disciples must have looked like when they were awakened. It's like, it's like so blinding. And you know that feeling when someone shines a bright light after you've been in the dark? That's how abruptly, the bottom line is this, this was not a gradual awakening to see Jesus. This was a, a very abrupt, bam, in your face, look at me, you, don't, you have no idea who you are running with. It's that kind of an abrupt, sudden awakening. You know, Moses had a similar experience back when he had received the Ten Commandments. He had spent that time with God, remember, it says in Exodus 34, 29 to 30, When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. And that's a very familiar story for every Israelite, every Jew. They would have known the story of Moses spending time with God and the reflected residual light of glory was so powerful that a human being's skin, flesh and blood coming down from that mountain was shining from just being around him, almost like a radioactive glow. But the difference between that story and this one is that Moses could only reflect the light of God. But it says here that Jesus, when he was glowing was transfigured. The Greek word, I don't often pull out the Greek, but you'll recognize this one. The Greek word for transfigured is metamorpho, from which we derive what English word? 
metamorphosis. A caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? It is not just a subtle reflection. It is a holistic changing of one's form. It is becoming something completely other than what you used to be. What we're getting here is not that Jesus somehow reflected or bounced the light of God off like a mirror, but that in fact he was generating the light from within himself. It was as though the skin was peeled back, and just for a moment, just like in V, when they go, and you see the, the lizard face, you know, it's like that. He's going, you don't know what I really look like. I am fully God, fully man, but when you look at me, all I've shown you is the fully human form. You have no idea the form I once had when I was divine in, in entirety. There was no human flesh put on me. I was completely different in glory than what you see now. For Jesus to put on human flesh and blood was a step down for him. We love our physical bodies, but to be flesh and blood when you are God in spirit is a total step down. And so for a moment, God allows them and us then to see that as Jesus pulls back the skin, you see him as he really is. He's completely different, and it was shocking. And so they struggle in their ancient minds to find words to describe a light so bright, no one on the earth at the time had seen anything like this. Imagine going back to the days of, of Adam and Eve and showing them a one, one million candle power searchlight and, and what that would look like. It would just be incomprehensible. And so they were trying to say things like, wow, his clothes became white as light, his face shone like the sun. It was whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. I mean, they're trying to use bleach because they're struggling to say, you have no idea how dazzling, how bright he was shining. This was not anything of this world. Now, in the days of computer graphics, and remember, we were introduced to it way back you know, with Indiana Jones and, and all that white light blasting out of people. We're so used to seeing that, that talking to audiences in the year 2011, it's like, all right, he was bright, big deal. We could totally do that with computers today. But let me tell you something. You would still freak out if without the aid of computer technology, someone stood before you and all of a sudden a blinding light just right out of their skin. And to the ancient mind, this was especially especially a profound experience. And so what they saw is Jesus as he really is. Let me tell you what, the, what the, the significance of that is. If anyone on earth could claim that they knew Jesus of Nazareth well, if there were any human beings on earth who could claim, yes, this Jesus, we know him, it would have been these three men, Peter, James, and John. They lived with him, they ministered with him, they did everything with him for three years. And not only that, I, every time he wanted to do something special, a special field trip, he would bring the gifted program. These three guys were the school within the school. He'd take them and he would give them special exposure to things the other nine were never allowed to see. So if anyone on earth could say, we're really close to Jesus, we know this guy inside and out, it would have been these three men. And it is these three that Jesus boldly awakens. He says, you think you know who I am. You think you're familiar with me. In fact, you're used to me. Sometimes when I lecture you, you start falling asleep, but you have no real idea who you've been walking with all this time. 
You knew that I was the son of man, the fulfillment of the prophecies, but you just heard that from, the, from studying scripture. You knew that I was the one who descended from the right people to be in line to be the Messiah, but you didn't really understand what I meant when I told you I was the son of God. If they ever thought of the words son of God as just a title for the Messiah, a human leader, they were definitely changing their minds now because they realized, no, this is not just a guy descended from David. This is God's son. He's not like anyone else. There's no one we've ever spent time with or encountered who's so wholly not of this world. And we thought we knew him, but today he has shown us that in all these three years of familiarity, we had never fully encountered who this man was. And they were completely marked for the rest of their lives by what they saw. It shows up again and again in their writings as they refer to the glory, the splendor, the majesty of Jesus. Every time Paul writes about it, he's reflecting off of their experience and his own on the road to Damascus. Every encounter with Jesus left people profoundly moved that they were dealing with someone other than just another religious leader. And I wonder if that's a challenge that needs to go out to many of us this morning. I wonder if we've become drowsy in the company of Jesus Christ. I mean, I know some of us have walked with him a long time. I've been walking with him since 1984. How many? I think it, Matt. I don't know how many years that is. But it's been a long time, okay? 27 years, is that right? 17 years? 27? <laughs> I, I need a Mac. Do you realize that after that many years, you just feel like Jesus is a household word? How many times have you prayed for a meal like this? Uh, dear God, thank you for this wonderful food. And I'm praying in Jesus' name. Amen. And you don't pray because you're actually thankful, but you pray because you don't want indigestion. Because you're still superstitious that if you don't pray, the food won't digest. And even as you say it, you, it's as if you've forgotten that this food, which is going to sustain you, this food which millions of people today on this planet will go without and will watch their babies starve to death, this food is provided to you from the hand of the Son of God. And because we're so used to Him, it's as if we have safely disregarded Him, packaged Him away and said, you know, this Jesus, He's like a fixture in my life. He's background scenery, static, white noise. He's everywhere around me. And so the truth is, I've grown drowsy in the company of the Son of God. And if that describes where you are spiritually today, I would also venture to guess that some other things in your life aren't really going that well either. That in some of your relationships or your emotional health, your overall sense of well-being, something seems miscalibrated. Something is a little bit off. Because when Jesus Christ is diminished in our lives, nothing else actually fits right. We will struggle to feel fully like ourselves, joyful as we once did when we saw him. And if that describes your spiritual state this morning, then what we need to all pray together is, God, grant me a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ so that my eyes will be open just like theirs, that you who I think I fully understand will become new again in my heart and in my eyes. And I want to recommend to you strongly that you try to pray for that wherever you are, but if it's really a dry spell for you and you feel distant and numb with Jesus, 
that you make an intentional trip. Go somewhere. Set aside the time and energy. Don't bring anyone else with you. And between you and God, you spend 24 hours with no other purpose on this earth than to see him with fresh eyes, to draw near to him again. He may or may not meet you on that particular trip, but I promise you, if you show that kind of intention, God is not playing hide-and-seek with us. He will reveal himself to you. I think the other observation we need to make from this is that they saw not only the glory, the radiance of Jesus, but they also saw the supremacy of Jesus. Supremacy is a fancy word for he kicks butt over everyone. There's nobody who ranks above Jesus. You can't say there's Jesus and then there's that guy above him. Jesus is first in everything. Listen to this. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I mean, seeing Jesus glow like the sun would have been impressive enough. But you add to this a visual sighting of Moses and Elijah. Because most of us, right, I think all of us are not Jews. You can't really understand just how completely crazy a turn of events this was. For the Jew to see Moses and Elijah, okay? I mean, that's like if I were to see, I wanted to say Billy Graham, but forget that. It's like if I were to see Apostle Paul and Peter visit our church. They appeared. And imagine you seeing me talking with Paul on one side and Peter on the other. I mean, we're talking about figures so legendary, so larger than life, that every Jew would have called Moses one of their their spiritual fathers, In fact, when Jesus referred to the whole law that defined Israelite life, he didn't even call it the law. He called it Moses and the prophets. Moses was so large in their minds that to actually see Moses in person would have been simply overwhelming for these three guys. And so here here they're seeing the familiar teacher shining like the sun, and that's already like got their circuits overloaded. And they look and go, oh my goodness, there's Moses there and Elijah there, two of the greatest figures from their history And Peter just doesn't know what to do. In in Luke's account, it says he is terrified and overwhelmed by all this. And so typical Peter, instead of keeping his mouth closed when he's overwhelmed, he just opens and lets whatever come out that's going to come out. And half the time, he's sticking his foot in his mouth, isn't he? And he just blurts out, oh, it's awesome that you're here. Let me make three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus, because the three of you are the same. You're great figures, and I'm going to make tents for each of you. He doesn't even get the words fully out of his mouth when a glorious cloud, like the Shekinah glory that covered the temple in the Old Testament, that glory, the cloud which is thick with the presence of God, descends down from heaven on them, and a booming voice begins to speak. This is the voice of God. And i got to tell you, for all the, the CGI and special effects, I am dying to know what God's voice sounded like that day. Aren't you curious about that? I can't wait to actually go, What God, what does your voice sound like when you say stuff? So that everyone who hears, there's no doubt this is God talking. And he speaks. And here's what he says. Guys, This is Moses and Elijah. How cool is it that you get to meet them in person? Make those tents, Peter. Make those tents. That's not what he said at all, is it? 
Here's Peter excited that he's got the three biggest dudes he's ever met all in one place. And it's like, just this past week, I met Tony Evans. You know, I, I went to Moody, met Tony Evans, shook his hand, got a free book from him. And I'm starstruck because Tony Evans is just the man. He is the man. Now imagine being with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, how starstruck he must have been. And here's what God says in the midst of all that. You could just hear the DJ's record. He goes, time out. No, no, no. Don't make three tenths, you fool. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He doesn't even mention Moses and Elijah. You guys there too? I didn't even see you down there. Because you don't matter compared to my son. Do you understand that he's standing next to the two greatest heroes that define Jewish faith? And God doesn't even mention, he completely ignores their presence and he shines the light right on Jesus and says, this is the guy your attention needs to be on. This is the one who is supreme above the other two. What's the theological significance of this? Why, of all the figures that Jesus could be talking to, do we have Moses and Elijah there with him? Well, Moses, as we already established, is synonymous with the law. He was the lawgiver to ancient Israel, so he was the one who taught the Israelites, this is God's moral requirement for you. If you want to obey God, these are the rules. You must live by them. And then because everybody kept blowing off the law, even though the law should have been enough to show them, they kept blowing it off, so then God would send prophets. People would say, go back to the book, you dummies. God already said everything. Do I have to tell you twice? And the prophets were used by God to say the things to people because they were already ignoring what God had already said. And so these are the two bodies of knowledge and the two men who represent them. Elijah was perhaps the greatest of the prophets and Moses was the lawgiver. And so their presence there symbolizes this, that we have in the one hand the law which taught people what rules to live by to get close to God. And then the prophets, which were God's direct voice, telling people, come back to me, come back here, stop wandering. And in the midst of these two people who defined for generations upon generations, how do we get to God? God now says, forget the law, forget the prophets. They once pointed to me, but really all they did in the end was point to this guy here in the middle. The law and the prophets point to my son. In other words, for you engineers, Jesus is greater than law plus prophets. Okay? J is greater than L plus P. Memorize that. Here, here's what it really is saying. Uh, let me break it down for you this way, okay? Jesus is elevated above the law and the prophets to say we will no longer ever come to God and win his approval by obeying rules that God requires us to obey. Not only that, when we disregard the rules already given, we will seek a word from God. Tell me directly what you want me to say. And we will no longer approach God even through that means by a special revelation telling us specifically what we're supposed to do. Instead of getting to God by trying to work really hard to be the kind of people who God likes, Jesus is now going to shatter that whole system. And what Jesus is now representing is mankind would never again reach God through moral straining and through the religious adherence to the law. But we would cling to Jesus who himself perfectly obeyed the law, perfectly fulfilled the prophecies. 
Jesus alone did what is impossible for us. So no longer will we ever try to approach God by being good enough for God, but we would cling desperately in faith to Jesus who was good enough for all time for God. Jesus alone satisfied the requirement of God. The rest of us, it's hopeless to even try as an offense, an insult to God's high holiness. That's like when my children, they were very young. They said, can we get a bigger house? And I'm like, yeah, why don't you guys help pay for it? And they would bring, you know, 20 cents. And I see what they're trying to do. But do you see, despite the purity of their hearts, the earnestness of their effort, how puny a symbol that giving was? Oh, good, son, 20 cents. Now we just have another $300,000 to go. We're almost there. Just keep... Do you realize for all our trying to be good enough for God, to try to wear a suit to church on Sunday, to stop chewing tobacco, to not dance the, the lascivious dances and you know, all that? And that was disgusting. I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. <laughs> we do all of that and we think, God, am I good enough yet? I've been to mission trips. I tithe faithfully. I know lots of guys at this church who don't tithe. I tithe. I volunteer. I've taught Sunday school and I'm a man. Don't I get some special credit? And all that effort to try to be good, to do good things, and then look at God and just like it works in school or with family. Are you proud of me yet? And God says, you don't understand how it works. Jesus, my son standing before you, is the only one I want to look at. He's bright, he's shining, he's radiant, he's enough for me. When I look at him, I can swallow my nausea when I look at you. You will fail every time, but it's okay, because my son succeeded where you fail. If you will hide behind him, you will always be okay with me. This is the good news of the gospel. That's why we call it good news. For Jesus to be above the law and the prophets is to say, we will never again try to approach God through the law or the prophets, but by clinging to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ who finished it. That is how we get confidence to stand before God. That's why our standing with God will no longer ever be defined by how well we're doing aligning ourselves with God's picture. But it will always be determined by how much we have trusted Jesus and Jesus only. I think another thing that this transfiguration teaches us about the supremacy of Christ is that Jesus is the most central figure in the Christian faith. Jesus first above everything. Here's another way for me to to push this. Jesus must be the first voice we always seek to hear. Let Let me ask you, is that really true of us? When you need guidance, when you're like, hey, should I sell this house? Should I take that job in California? Should I have a fifth kid? Should I go into pastoral ministry? Should I get a second dog? These are big questions, questions with huge consequences if you've miscalculated. And let me ask you, who do you consult first when you need to hear a voice? Whose voice is most sought after, most cherished, most esteemed in your life? Sometimes I get the really creepy feeling when someone's talking to me that my voice starts to mean more to them than even the voice of God. And I try to pull back. I get nervous. I love you. I'm your pastor. I want to guide you. But man, if you're like, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. I don't have that kind of authority. I don't have that kind of spiritual power. I am not your God. I cannot dictate the outcomes of your life or the direction of your steps. I can guide you as a shepherd, but you have a great shepherd. His voice missing from your life, my voice will only steer you astray. Is his voice 
the first voice you actively seek out when you need something? Is his purpose really the first purpose you seek to live for? Is his pleasure the first pleasure you're always craving to get? And is his displeasure or offense the most hateful thing to you? Whose disappointment crushes you the most? Whose disappointment? Who is it? And you know, my, when, when I was growing up, my mom would often be the one lecturing us. And if there was a spanking to be done, my mom, she was, I think, stronger than my dad maybe. But she's, she would spank us. When, and we needed it many times. But my dad would have this thing where he would just go, just that little head shake. Ugh. I regret that those are my sons. You know, that kind of, the disappointment. And the disappointment of my father could crush me. And I have to be very careful of the power I have over my own children when I express disappointment over them. But whose disappointment crushes you the most? When Jesus says, wow, you're supposed to belong to me, how can you live like that? How can you do that? That really disappoints me. Does that crush you? Does it have the effect it should when Jesus is seen in his supremacy? And above all things, is his finished work the thing you most trust in to give you a good standing before God, to give you eternal security, to say, I can stand up and keep walking despite my numerous failures because I trust above every other thing in the finished work of Jesus Christ for me. Let me give you a quick word of encouragement here. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. You know, sometimes I like it when our people um, travel and they meet somebody else. And I've spoken at that church and they're like, You go to Harvest? You you mean Pastor Dave is your pastor? He's awesome. And they come home, they have new eyes for me. I like it. I'm like, Yeah, you better better respect, man. You know, you better better recognize. I'm the man when I travel, but here I'm just like, Right? And I like that because I'm fleshly and sinful and insecure. I like it when I'm a big shot and I scare people and they go, oh, best. Jesus is not like that. He shows this incredible glory. It crushes them. It brings them to their knees. They're afraid for their lives. And then look what Jesus is next. He didn't just go, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Next time I tell you to get up and pray, you better stay awake. Now you know who I am. Uh, Don't make me shine on you. Don't, you know. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is doing, is it? He doesn't use it to suppress them, to intimidate them. But he says, now that you've seen who I am, I know that you are so terrified, you can't even look up. And he touches their shoulders and he says, but get up. Don't be afraid. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Look at me. You know me. But now you'll never see me the same way again. His point, his intention was, now that you know who I really am, how much greater is the blessing when you see that I love you that I'll one day wash your feet, that I'll lay down my life for you, that I accept you with mercy despite how often you fail. I patiently wait while you work things out. I'm with you and I'm for you. How much greater is that knowledge when you realize who it is that's being this way to you? I don't know where your politics lie, but I know one thing. The President of the United States is a busy, busy man. And I wonder if Malia and Sasha Obama fully realize what a gift it is to them every single time their daddy 
sets aside time to be a real dad to them in the midst of his service as the president of the United States. Now, you might be cynical. You might be a, a, a total Republican. Oh, what a photo op. They probably staged that like this. Get over it. The point is that this man, I, I'm a dad. I know when a dad is really happy with his kids. You see it in the face. And he's delighting in his children. And I've seen many photos like this. And do you realize when you're the president of the United States, but you make time to be a dad, I wonder if the kids fully appreciate what a gift it is. They're probably like, why is daddy always gone? Like, you have no idea. The fact that daddy even shows up, do you, do you realize how hard it must be for him to carve out that time? And someday when they're grown and they realize who their dad really was in history, I wonder if they'll fully process and realize, my goodness, what a gift it was that we just flew kites with dad. That's crazy that he made time to fly kites with us while he was the president of the United States. Now, that's just one silly illustration. But do you realize that Jesus has that heart for us? Someday you will realize who it was that patiently waited in the wings while you figured out how you felt about him. While you figured out whether you wanted to be seduced by darkness or walk in the light. And while you're figuring all that out, it's Jesus, the bright, radiant, glowing Son of God, who is showing mercy to you and waiting patiently for you. Let me just wrap up by giving you one final word of hope. To see Jesus in his glory would have given these disciples a tremendous lift. Such hope. Because for them, they had seen many reasons to follow Jesus, but, you know, he kept talking at, just before this time. He started talking about, I'm going to die. I'll be dead for three days, and I'll come back from the dead. And they thought, I think our rabbi is starting to lose his mind. He's talking about dark, dark things, violent things, things that don't, don't open up our hearts. In fact, Peter even said, no, you will never die. And then what did Jesus say to him? You're talking like Satan right now. I have to die, but hard times are coming. You're going to see just how broken and damaged this world is. They will rip my flesh apart with horrible weapons. You will see blood. You will see bone. You will see my nerves dangling out of my body. You will see things so horrible done to me. You will understand just how broken a world we have. But let me show you something that will give you hope that this broken, disgusting, dysfunctional world full of pain and violence is not all there is. There is a world of glory from which I came and to which I will return, and you will all go there with me one day if your faith is put in me. And let me just peel everything back, this flesh, this meat and bone, and show you the glory from where I came, the glory that is your destiny. One day we will all rise above this broken earth and we will live with him in glory. That compelling picture allowed them to walk through the muck and the mire of some very difficult days. It gave them some hope. Look what John says years later, writing in exile on an island, reflecting on what he saw that day on the mountain. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but... We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He says, guys, I saw it. I can't even describe it to you. But the amazing thing is, when he comes and takes us home, we will also look like that. All this down here, our frail and infirm bodies, 
our troubled, dissatisfied, restless hearts. Things we long for that will never happen in this earthly life. All that disappointment, pain, regret. All of that's going to be melted away. And one day with Him, we will be glorious. That hope helps us trudge through this life until we get to that day, that great day when He brings us all home to glory. Whether it's the physical infirmities that hold you down, whether it's a difficult life that you have to endure, one day we also will be radiant like Him. Paul promised that. 1 Corinthians 15 read it just about every funeral you ever go to. That these corruptible, broken bodies will one day be like His. Glorious, untouchable, above it all. Doesn't that give you some hope as God calls you to come back to this real world as the glow of Jesus' face dims again and here I am with my old mundane life full of disappointments. He says, but you can keep putting one foot in front of the other because someday that glory will be ours too. One last passage and I'll sit down. Listen to what Peter said how profound an impact this vision had on him. He says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when we received honor and glory, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter could never forget that scene. That's why the second coming of Christ became an obsession for him. He couldn't wait to see that glory again. And he says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. If you saw what I saw, Peter says, you would have no trouble trusting in the good words of God. What he says are true. This world is not your home. We have a much more glorious place to live for and walk towards. And we can rise above this because Jesus has shown us his glory. And I think if we see it, it will mark our lives forever too. And so that's the way I want to invite us to pray. I want to invite you just to bow with me. And especially if you've been a Christian for a while. And you're one of those growing drowsy in the company of God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.